Okay, for those of you who have not uh, been with us, we've been working through the Bible in a contextual fashion, going through the book of John, the book of Acts, and we'll start the book of Revelation next Sunday. And I've written next Sunday's lesson. I'm really excited for teaching here for over a decade. I have never taught on the book of Revelation uh, for various reasons, but I'm excited to be able to do so uh, uh, starting next Sunday. And it'll be an interesting process as we try to do it because I'll be teaching on the supporting passages for the main passage, which is being preached on by Pastor David or whomever he has preaching that Sunday. So please come next Sunday. If you've got friends who are interested, uh, bring your friends, bring your neighbors. Uh, it'll be fun to look at some of those things and to talk about them. And I think you may find it uh, um, uh Maybe even a bit uh, uh, interesting yourself. At least I hope you will. I don't know where you are on your life's journey. I don't know how your adventure is going. I will admit uh, for Dr. Bob and I, it has felt a bit goofy uh, having spent uh, the last two months uh, at an opportunity that, that didn't seem to work. But I can't put this up here without being reminded. Uh, I was in Dallas and, and perhaps uh, 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 that may be part of why this cartoon means so much to me, except in the opposite way. And so I want to warn you all, I have the best mother-in-law in the world. She lives in Dallas. My wife would argue with me and say that she has the best mother-in-law in the world who lives here in Houston because both of us are really blessed in that regard. But having said that, I don't know if you follow Mr. Boffo or not, but this cartoon was pretty good for the, Noah's talking. So then he says, the choice is up to me. Either take my mother-in-law or two of every animal on the planet. I would have taken my mother-in-law. Um, uh, anyway, I hope that your journey in life, I can assure you of this, whether it's the Goofy movie or whether it's the journey of Noah, life will have twists and turns that we do not anticipate. It will have twists and turns that we do not like, that we do not pray for, that we do not enjoy, that we don't eagerly anticipate. That's the adventure we're on. The question just becomes a twofold question. Do we live it in faith that there is a God who irons out the wrinkles of this journey? And in the process, do we live it faithfully such that we're trying to make it as wrinkle free as we can? By being faithful to the Lord. And I want that in our brains as we work through the lesson today. Now, David, Pastor David in his sermon got us caught up through Acts 28 and started writing Acts 29 for us this morning. If you were in there, I thought that was rather clever. And and being fresh off of writing this stuff, I did at least turn to Becky and, and I think Kevin next to her and say, Did he just say Acts 29? There isn't an Acts 29. He's drinking. Um <laughs> But he's right, the Acts 29, uh, the, the next chapter of Acts is always being written. It's being written in our lives. So Paul leaves Caesarea, 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 however you want to say it. He leaves uh, that one. There were lots of actually towns and cities named after Caesar. But he leaves the Caesar by the sea there and he goes to Rome. And in the process of getting to Rome, he takes a, a, a route that is laden with history. If you're reading Acts 27, which is the actual journey start 
on into Acts 28. It's in the we verses of Acts. And if in fact Luke is part of that journey, it makes sense like the other we verses in Acts. Whenever the we verses are there, instead of being, hey, and after a couple of days they went to Corinth, or after a couple of days they went there, with the we verses it's always, we went from here to here, it took one day, and then from here to here, and it took one day, and then from there, like it was a journal uh, uh, entry being uh, transposed into the book of Acts. And we have that here. So you can follow the, the journey as they, they skirt all the way around and they've got all of the different towns and they talk about where the ships come from. They talk about the wind. And so they have to put in at Sidon because the wind, when it, when they would sail back then, they didn't plug into the GPS, the coordinates of where they wanted to go. And the ships would typically try to sail with land in sight. Now, from Sidon, they could sail across to that island that you see, the island of Cyprus. But instead, with this, they had to sail up around the coast because of the winds. And they sailed around Amira, and that's where they changed ships. They acquisition a new ship, and they're running tough on time. They're trying to get this trip in before the winter season, which is a season where you would not travel by boat in the Mediterranean unless it was an absolute emergency. And so they start to set out, and you'll see I've circled here the little island of Crete. Paul's warning the ship's captain not to set sail too far, but they sail from the coast of Turkey down to the island of Crete. And once they're there, they start sailing on the southern side and they go to Fairhaven and from Fairhaven to Phoenix. And the problem is the winds change as they're doing this. And when the winds change, if we go back to a blow up of Crete, you'll see the winds at first are going to keep them near the coast. But as the winds shift, they're in trouble. Now let's explain the, the sailing process. Safe travel in the Mediterranean by ship is May 27th through September 14th in general. We're actually grabbing this from a Roman writer. And uh, he's the same guy everybody cites. I, as a lawyer, have questions. Well, what about on leap year? <clears throat> but they don't ask me. So I'm just reporting it the way the historians have recorded it. May 27th to September 14th is safe travel. Now, risky travel. March 10th to May 26th on the front end. And the back end, September 14th to November 11th. Now, we know that Paul had date or Luke dates some of the... Oh, by the way, that means no travel between November 11th and March 10th. The weather was just too unpredictable back then. It still is. But the winter storms, they didn't have a clue if they were coming. And they would shipwreck you. And, and some of you are boaters. And if you're a boater, you're thinking, hey, I can handle storms. A, you have a different boat. B, you probably have a motor. They don't have motors and they don't have your boat. So cut them some slack. It was tough going and they had figured out not to travel then. Now Luke dates this to Yom Kippur, to the Day of Atonement, to the fast that comes with those high holy days. And if he's right in the dating, and we can get pretty close here because of some other aspects of the book, then we're looking at probably 59 A.D., the Day of Atonement and all of this means they're setting sail and they're doing this voyage after October 5th. They are in the risky time. 
And if they're in the risky time sailing after October 5th, Paul says to the, to the head guy, he says, hey, I don't think you ought to be doing this. The head guy's kind of like, this is my job. Leave me alone. We're going to make it. And things looked really good at first. But during that risky time, they quickly turned south. The weather itself did. A south wind starts and it's blowing them. And it's a good blow because it keeps them near that southern coast of Crete. But just as soon as you wake up, a northeaster blows in. And when the northeaster blows in, the winds start shifting. And now the boat can't stay near the land. And the boat starts going past. And it goes down south of Cauda. They can't put in there. I've given you, in fact, can I have some microphone here? We got microphone? I forgot to warn you guys. I had some sound today. Let's see if this works. Ah, I've messed up. Hold on. It's not working. Nah, sorry. I had the theme of Gilligan's Island. I thought it really would have worked well. Because the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was lost. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. Um, The ship set ground on the shore of this not uncharted, not desert isle. They put in at Malta, and it's a shipwreck at Malta. The ship runs aground, and, and it's, it's fascinating read. I mean, Luke's telling the story as one who's involved in the story. And so he's talking about how, you know, they go 14 days without people being able to hold on their food. Paul says, after 14 days, don't worry about it. I, I got word from the Lord. We're all going to make it and it's going to work fine. Go ahead and break out the food. You can start eating now. The weather starts slackening. They can, they're taking soundings. They take big old rocks and they tie them to ropes and they drop the rope down. When it gets slack, they know the rock hit bottom and they're able to pull it up and they're able to measure. So they're in 125 feet of water. And then they do it again a few minutes later. They're in 75 feet of water. That's a sign the water's moving shallower and shallower. So they drop some anchors from the back of the boat. And and a couple of guys say, we'll drop some anchors from the front. Let's get in the dinghy and we'll go do it. Paul recognizes those sailors are getting it. Not sailors, those, yeah, sailors are getting in the dinghy. Because they're just going to row to shore. It's going to be... And so Paul recognizes the ship's not going to do quite so well where the best sailors have just rowed to shore in the dinghy. So he tells the centurion, Julius, he says, you know, I said we'd all make it. That's assuming we have sailors on the boat. You let those guys go in the dinghy. We're not going to see them again and we're not going to make it. So Julius, as his last name, his first name was Orange. Julius... Takes his sword and he chops off the rope and the dinghy takes off. And he tells the sailors, you want to make it? You make it in this boat with us. And so they start trying to figure out what to do. The boat ultimately, they run it aground on a reef. They know that it's going to, to, to fall apart. It gives them time to get their possessions put together and figure out which ones they want. Those that can swim, jump out and start swimming for Malta. Those that can't swim are probably grabbing a hold of planks, boards, whatever they can. And that's their little boogie board to, to surf on their way into Malta. Uh, the, the, the soldiers at first are going to put to death Paul and the prisoners. 
But Julius, the centurion, says, no, 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 don't do that. By the way, Luke typically seems to name people who subsequently come to faith. It's very typical in Luke and Acts for him to give identifiers so that folks could go back and verify the story and to give some credence to uh, uh, those people as well. So Julius saves Paul's life and the other prisoners. They get on shore and they're greeted by the people of Malta. Now the people of Malta, if you're reading the King James, they're barbarians. And the American standard, they're barbarians. But they're not barbarians. They actually speak a Phoenician dialect. And the Greek word for someone who's a non-Greek speaker is a barbaroi, for lack of anything better. Because to the Greek ear, it sounds like whatever they're saying is just bar, 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 bar. From which the Beach Boys drew a very big song, if you don't know that. So anyway, they get on Malta. And they get a marvelous reception there, ultimately. Especially after Paul gets bit by a snake and he just kind of shakes it off in the fire. They decide Paul's a god. So the governor of the island feeds them. They get, I don't know what, maybe it's Malta meal, malted milk, and some malted milk balls. But they get some food on Malta. They stay there for three months. Paul's ministering to the people and he's doing a marvelous thing. Once the weather passes, they get on board another ship from Malta and they sail to Syracuse. They sail to Regium and then they start sailing up the coast of Italy to Puteoli, which is modern day Naples. And they put in, so, uh, uh, you know, you, you sail into that harbor in Naples. You got the Isle of Capri on your left, you, which is where uh, 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 it was a popular vacation spot even then. Uh, Roman emperor kept a summer home there. You sail in, you go off to the right, and uh, uh, you're into the port of Naples. That's where they put in. And it's from Naples that they take the road on into Rome. Paul goes into Rome. He's there for two years. And for two years, Paul ministers through Rome. And uh, uh, during that time, he writes a number of different books. One of the books he writes is the letter to the Philippian church. And it's a marvelous letter because it's often called the, the, the letter or the book of joy. This is the book, count it all, joy, my brothers, when you meet various... No, that's actually James. Uh, um, go to Philippians. Sorry, my brain just short-circuited. Um, go to Philippians and you'll see him talk about rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice uh, uh, let your patience be known to all men. The Lord is near. But look at, at what he says specifically in chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, let's get that as straight as we can. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, if you were in church this morning, Pastor David read a section from Corinthian correspondence of Paul where Paul talked about his multiple times to be shipwrecked, robbed, all the rest. You can add another shipwreck to it. Um, he's now got Malta added to the list. He's had a horrible last couple of years by anybody's reckoning, but not by Paul's. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for the anointed one. 
My imprisonment is for Jesus. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I really like this. I like this concept that the wrinkles and the bad turns in the goofy movie and the, 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 the horrible things that happen in our lives are things that God can work through not only to redeem them for you, but let's get a little bit less narcissistic for a moment and a little bit self-centered and consider what an honor it would be to have your life or my life messed up in such a way that God ministers and brings other people to faith. Can you imagine the honor? I happen to, I, I, I want to just tell everybody right now, I apologize. I'm about to brag. I have married the finest woman in the world. Now, you guys, you guys may think you have, and God bless you, I'm glad you do, but I really did. And one of the things that, that makes me feel guilty in our relationship is the fact that Becky has a gift of service. And so she is constantly asking what she can do for me. What can I, can I get you something for breakfast? Can I help get this done? Can I help get that done? What can I do? How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And, and it's magnificent. And, and, and I have to hold back. I mean, this could really be a great one way relationship. (laughs) I've thought about just starting each day by giving her a list (laughs) and saying, when you get that done, come back, I'll give you another. But, but obviously that's not the nature of love, I hope. But I'm here to tell you, in Becky's mind, she counts it an honor to get to serve and to minister to other people. And yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. But I want to tell you, I'm starting to get a little of that mentality. Not enough to where I'm willing to do stuff for you, don't get me wrong. But I'm starting to get a little bit of that mentality. What kind of an honor would it be? To suffer something willingly and graciously and submissively before God, knowing that from that God's going to bring some blessing to others, that he's going to bring people to faith. That's an honor. I mean, how often do we look at at the bad turns in life and say, oh, this is terrible, instead of saying, Okay, bad turn we had, Bob, last two months, really bad turn. But maybe through the way we live and what we do, God will use that to bring some people to faith. There's some magnificent things that are here. And that's what we have with Paul. So Paul writes that letter. If we go back to the out. So Paul writes that letter. There's another letter he writes. It's a letter... That uh, uh, is not the Philippian letter. Let me get that. It's a letter called Philemon. And Kathleen Hauser knows it's one of my favorite books. And so, yes, Kathleen, we're going to talk about Philemon for just a moment. Philemon is the story of a slave named Onesimus. 
Onesimus finds Paul, or Paul finds Onesimus in Rome. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's run away from an area that Paul's quite familiar with. Paul spent years over in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. Ephesus being a central city for what was then considered Asia. And so Ephesus and Laodicea and, and, and other places over in that area are places that, that would have been ministered to. Ephesus being the hub of the wheel and, and, and the spokes that go out to all of those various places. Onesimus runs away from there and goes to Rome. If you want to get off the grid in first century Western civilization, go to Rome. Those other cities aren't massive, though Ephesus is a pretty good size. But Rome's got over a million people, largest city in the empire. It's got people of every dialect, people of every nationality. It's the place to come off the grid. And so Onesimus runs away. He gets to Rome. And once he gets to Rome, he comes under the influence of Paul. And becomes a believer in Christ. And Paul winds up sending Onesimus back to his earthly master, his owner, back to Philemon. Now, the penalty for being a runaway slave is easy. It's whatever your master wants it to be. Because slaves in the first century were owned. And the owner of the slave, as of the first century, still had a right to put the slave to death should he choose to. You can read the Justinian Code, which was Roman law, written down a couple of hundred years later. But as it was written a couple of hundred years later, it still said these were the rules before. And I don't know, at least a legal scholar, in doubt. I've read the code. And there's no doubt in my mind a slave owner at this time had full right to put the slave to death. The slave was not a person. The slave was chattel. That's a legal term. Chattel is something you own. My car is chattel. These clothes are chattel. Chattel. Two of them. Chattel. It's singular or plural. You don't add... Actually, you can add an S. You can make it chattels. But you can also use... Anyway, don't need to debate that point. So, that's what you've got. you got chattel. Philemon can do anything he wants to, to set an example for others. To show himself master. To stop other people from running away. To keep control of the slaves. To keep control. And he may be a great slave owner. A really good guy. You would hope so. He's prominent in the church. He's got a house church that meets in his home. Where Eric Philemon's a leader. So you hope he's a good slave owner. But you don't have to work hard in your brain. To come up with the arguments that he can be making. Hey I need to be a responsible slave owner. I need to make sure that those slaves who are doing their job dutifully and right and don't run away 
are treated fairly, while the runaway son, I mean, this is not the prodigal son come home to daddy saying, I've sinned, father. This is a runaway slave. So Paul writes this letter and he sends the letter back and it's, it's a short letter. It's the only purely personal letter we have from Paul. Now you might be thinking, well, what about, uh, Titus? What about first, second Timothy? If you accord those to Paul, which they claim and, and I do, but I'm a, A lot of scholars don't, and I should recognize that. Um, But those aren't purely personal letters. They're still letters dealing with church governance and dealing with with, uh, how to handle problems within churches. Not so Philemon. Philemon is purely personal. And it's short. And so I'd like to spend the next 15 minutes looking at it with you, if you would uh, do me that service. I think it's very instructive. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Paul typically starts his letters out. Let's take, uh, for example, Philippians, which he also wrote from his Roman imprisonment. Philippians begins, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus... To the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the elders and the deacons. So he calls himself a bond servant. Here Paul uses a different word. He's a prisoner. He's under lock and key. Though probably in a house arrest situation. But Paul is a prisoner and he's using that term, I think, very specially Because you got to remember, he's writing to a slave owner about the runaway slave. And so Paul's immediately putting himself in the position of someone who is under authority, lock and key. Paul does not have freedom. He's not a slave. Maybe even worse, he's a prisoner. But he's without his freedom. And so in that Philemon owner, Onesimus relationship, Paul more closely is on terms with the slave than he is. Now, by the way, since we're reading our context Bible, if you were reading, you'll notice I threw in a little passage out of Deuteronomy to go with this. We ought to pause and go to that for a moment. It's Deuteronomy 23. Paul knew the law. Paul studied the law. Paul would have memorized this passage. Would have memorized the Torah, I expect. Paul knew, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He'll dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he chooses within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, and don't wrong him. Isn't that interesting? The law says, don't give up A runaway slave. If it's a a, a foreigner who's come, who's escaped. And yet we have here Paul sending the runaway slave back. And he sends him back and he says, 
Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother. Now, that beloved is not using uh, the Greek word phileos, or friend love, a brotherly love. But Paul's actually using a form of agape. Agape tone is the, the form here. It is it is an agape love, as we would say it in anglicized. To our agape love, that's a, a love for the other. That's not a self-centered love. That's a love that's not because of what I get out of it. It's not simply a kindred, a kindred love, a, a brotherly love. But it's a love very much motivated by concern and care and conviction for the good of the other. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a number of scholars with us this weekend uh, who speak Greek. So, uh, scholars, you need to know we commonly look at the Greek because everyone in this class is pretty fluent. <laughs> if we were looking at this in our Greek text, one of the things that might strike us is this word grace to you. Amen. Amen is the plural you. In the Texas translation, this would read, grace to y'all. Because this is you plural. Grace to you plural. He's writing to Philemon and Appia and, and, and uh, uh, Archippus. So it's grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But starting here in verse 4, there is a shift in two ways. It's no longer Paul and Timothy. It's now I, I, I. Paul's made it very personal. And the yous are no longer amen. It's now sue, which is singular. So Paul's just shifted from Paul and Timothy, talking about our Lord and, and all... Paul's to y'all, and now he's honed in, and it's mano a mano. It's one-to-one. It's face-to-face. Paul is saying, I to you, because he's directing this to Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your Philemon love and of the faith that you, Philemon, have Towards the Lord Jesus Christ and what's that word? What's that phrase? Say it out loud. Who does that now include? Onesimus the slave. He's gone from being Onesimus the slave to Onesimus brother in the Lord. Saint. Set apart. Called by God. Paul's just loaded that up, hadn't he? (laughs) I mean, that's pretty good. 
the lawyer in me really respects the way he pulled that one off. I hear of your love and of the faith, the love and the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. The way that's written in the Greek, it's beautiful. Because it's the, the, the implication is that the love and the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus is the same love and faith you're to have for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And doesn't that make sense? Because if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus teaches us that he dwells within us. So if you have love and faith for the Lord Jesus, you're going to have love and faith for the brothers and sisters. Because they are the body of Christ. So Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith. Philemon's going to get a chance to share his faith in a remarkable way here in a moment. By the way he treats Onesimus. Paul is setting Philemon up, not in a manipulative sense, but in a very carefully clear truthful sense. Paul's not saying anything that's not accurate. It's all accurate. It's all insightful. It's all genuine. But boy, does it change who you are and how you behave. Sharing your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. For because I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. My brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. All right, Paul, you've set it up. Now, what are you going to ask for? Accordingly, because of these things, even though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. Yet. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, parakalo. It actually becomes, in modern Greek, the way you say thank you. I prefer to appeal to you. I love the way he just uses love throughout this. Philemon is loved. Philemon has love for the Lord. Philemon has love for the saints. And for love's sake, Paul is not going to order something. Paul is going to appeal. He's going to ask. He's going to, 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 to set it as a choice Philemon makes. This is I, Paul, an old man. Now I can relate to this. I turned 54 Monday. And, you know, to me, 54 is the new 53. I don't know about you. But the, the, the presbutes is the, the Greek word that Paul uses there for, that's translated old man. 
and a lot of scholars are quick to recognize that there were uh, different words that were used for different ages of uh, uh, someone. And Philo writes about the seven ages of a man. And there's, you know, the baby, that's birth to seven years old. And then there's the kid, that's seven to 14. And then you've got the young man who's 14 to 21. And then you've got the man who's 21 to like 28 or something. Yeah, yeah, you can place yourself in here. Uh, um, uh, And then it's got this big jump until you get to the old man. And the old man is like uh, uh, 49 to 56, if I recall correctly. That's who we are. That's how old Paul was when he's writing this. Then you got like really old. Yeah, yeah, you're waving your hand. That's, that's really good of you. All right. Um, uh, but hey, it beats the alternative. I, well, actually it doesn't if you're in the Lord, but... Anyway, I'm not in a hurry. All right. So I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child. Onesimus. I appeal to you for my child. Now, he's not his physical genetic offspring. He's his child in the faith. I appeal to you. It's the same word, parakalo here. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, so I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Now, you'll see the ESV does a really good job of dropping a footnote there. Look at the footnote. Footnote number two. Let's try to make it big enough to really jump out. Footnote number two. Automatic focus. Onesimus means useful. Useful. It was a very typical slave name in the first century and and before. Useful. Um, Okay. Onanami, by the way, is is the, the verb to be of use. So, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became... In my imprisonment. Hold on. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, before, he was useless to you. Now there's a pun here. His name is useful. Oh, useful. Used to be useless to you. But now, he is indeed useful. To you and to me. Now Paul's not using that word Onesimus in the passage. But he's making a play off of the meaning of Onesimus. He'll use the word Onesimus later. In its common form as opposed to a name form. But here he's just saying. Before he was of no use. And now he is of good use. Not just to you. But he's of good use. You Christone. He's of good use to me as well. So, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me. 
it would have been okay. In fact, it would have been proper under the law of Moses for me to keep him with me. In order, I could even justify it, that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be forced on you, but would be something you chose to do. Not by compulsion, but of your own free will. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. Nobody likes it when their slave runs away. Philemon couldn't have been happy. Ah, great. Oh, useful ran away, did he? Useless, no good, so-and-so. Go find him. Can't find him. He's gone. Ah, now I've got to reassign the chores. You got all of this. Says, but maybe there was a reason that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Beloved brother. Agape tone. It's the same label that Paul gave Philemon at the start of the letter. Paul calls Philemon his beloved fellow worker. It's the exact same word. Philemon is to see Onesimus the same way Paul sees Philemon. That, I guarantee you, you get a letter from St. Paul... And he says he loves you with agape love. And it's right there at the front. You got a house church. You're going to read that letter to your house church. I got a letter from Paul. Personal letter from Paul. You're going to read it. and You're going to be thinking, hey, my family's going to see this. Paul, a prisoner. He's in prison. And he writes me, what a guy. What a guy. You know, he's got all that stuff going on. He's in big Rome. He's thinking about me back here. What a neat guy to Philemon, our beloved fellow. We're all, that's me. And now we're already just down 15 verses and he's pointing out that Onesimus is now to be my beloved brother. Especially to me. How much more to you now that he's both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner. Remembering Paul started this out as you're my beloved co-worker. Now, if you consider me your partner, we're co-workers. Receive him like you would receive me. And if he's wronged you at all, if he owes you any charge, anything, charge it to my account. Now, there's an interesting uh, recognition here that the church at an early age is praying the Lord's Prayer. The Didache, which is uh, one of our earliest Christian writings not in the Bible and probably predates uh, uh, Revelation and, and, and some of the other go- uh, Gospel of John, says that the church would practice, say, by, or part of the practice of the church would be saying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. The Lord's Prayer... In Greek, now you scholars who are in here, we typically do it in Greek each Sunday here, but I won't embarrass the class and make them do it in front of you. But you'll recall in English, 
forgive us our debts. And we always wonder what kind of church we're in. Do they say debts or trespasses? You know, and so you always kind of, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our... And you just kind of let everybody else say it first to see if it's going debts or trespasses. Ophelemata in the Greek. Ophele is your debt. It's what you owed. And, and, and the, the actual uh, Lord's Prayer says that to, to let go of the obligations. As we let go of the obligations that are due to us. Forgive us our debts. Let go of what we're obliged to pay back as we let go others. So Philemon's likely in a church where they're saying this on a regular basis. Paul's using that Lord's Prayer word here. And says, hey, if he owes you a debt, put it on my account. Charge it to me. And oh, by the way, when you go to bed at night, be sure and say, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who owe debts to us. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of the fact that you owe me your whole life. I've got a friend who says, I don't know about being, uh, 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 about Paul, but, but he had the same Jewish mother I had. He said, because he's just got this down. And, uh, anyway, and I, um, so that was for you, Rick. Um, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Benefit. That's where he uses the word, the Greek word Onesimus. I want some benefit. I want some Onesimus from you. Some scholars think Paul's saying, send him back to me. I want some Onesimus from you. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing you'll do even more than I say. Oh, and get a guest room ready because I'm sure you're praying that I'll get there soon and I hope so. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Now, I'd love to tell you what happened to Onesimus. And I can't not tell you for certain, but I can come pretty close. Let me throw out one thing. Paul would not have sent him back if Paul wasn't sure of what was going to happen. And I don't see how any believer reads this letter and does anything less than testifies to the greatness of God who has set all of us free. What right has any man or woman to own anyone when we are all owned by God? And have been set free from the laws of sin and death. There's not a doubt in my mind what would have been done. There's not a doubt in my mind that Onesimus is set free. Now, here's an interesting little fact for you. There is an early church father named Ignatius. That about 40 years after this. And by the way, the odds are Onesimus is a kid when he does this. He runs away as a teenager. That's the kind of thing people do when they're 15, 16, 17. You don't do that if you've been a slave for 40 years in a good house. You're already, your IRA's vesting and you're on the retirement plan. And, and frankly, I'm at the age of 54. I don't have enough energy to run away. So I just might as well stay, stay here and just live with it, right? But the young boys do. So 40 years later, 45 years later, Ignatius is going to Rome to be martyred and he's writing some letters and he writes a letter to the Ephesian church. And the bishop of the Ephesian church is named Onesimus, which would have been the age of Onesimus 
the place of Onesimus would fit the age and would have been the place. And slaves wouldn't typically become bishops of churches, you would not think. And Onesimus, useful, is a slave name. Add to it two other issues. There is a great deal of scholastic uh, conjecture that Paul's letters were accumulated into a corpus in Ephesus in the first century. So doesn't it make you wonder, a lot of people wonder, why is this letter in the Bible? Who, who saved the letter to Philemon? Who put that personal letter in there? Unless maybe it was the bishop of Ephesus, Onesimus, who's putting together the corpus of Paul's, and it's conjecture, but putting together the corpus of Paul's letters and says, hey, I got one. I want to make sure it makes it. Because if I'm Onesimus, I would never let this letter leave my sight. I'd be buried with it. So we go back to the Elmo. Here are your points for home. Points for home are simple. First of all, I'm living my life adventure and it's goofy at times, but it is what it is. And I signed on for the program and I'm excited. And it doesn't matter what twists and turns there are. I'm going to find God's joy in my life. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says, again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your patience be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's not far. And so we endure... We do it recognizing that there is a purpose beyond our life. And there is a purpose beyond our purpose. And that's the purpose I'm here to serve. I am not here for me. I gave that up when I signed on to the Lord. I am not my own. I belong to him. And I hope you'll join me in that journey. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray your blessings upon us as we get ready to launch into Revelation next week. I pray that you'll continue to to give us uh, 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 excitement and opportunities to learn and to share and to discern your message for us. I pray especially you'll bless the hearers of this message, that they will accept the life that you've got in front of them. Not to say, Lord, that we don't fight for the good and we don't fight for the right and we don't fight for the things that we know are holy and just in your sight. But that we do so, Lord, knowing that you are the God who will fix every problem and iron out every wrinkle in your good time, in your manner. And in that regard, Lord, we put ourselves at your disposal to use as you may. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray this. Amen.